A quick warning, this episode contains discussion of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Hello. Well, hi there, Zelda. How are you today? It is a beautiful, sunshiny day. A wonderful day to talk about murder. Oh, yeah. It's really cold outside where we're at. Um, Even colder where you're at. But, you know, when you see that the temperature is at five and that's pretty close to the high for the day. Yes. Yeah. You know Mm -hmm. what type of day it's going to be. And (laughs) But um, just a quick... uh, um, anyhow, I want, I'm having problems. Hold on. <laughs> no worries. I had a thought and it escaped my head as I was thinking the thought. Have you ever done that? Uh, uh, like every minute of every day. Yeah. Anyhow, I want to introduce ourselves to any new listeners we might have. I'm Denise Gilhart and I'm Zelda. Hello. Hello. And we are Murderous Roots and we discuss the family trees of killers or criminals. Because I'm sure we're going to branch out beyond just killers at some point. Yeah. And sometimes we do victims too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the show. And how have you been? I'm doing great, honestly. I have a new job and <laughs> I start that. So I'll be joining the ranks of the employed. I'm very excited about that. And I'm actually really interested to know why did you choose the person that we chose that you chose for today? Oh, gosh, I don't actually remember because so when I was thinking about doing this podcast starting in the summer of 2019, I decided to compile a list of people I'd like to explore. And her name came up. I think it was because of the fact that she was executed. Oh, like yeah. There's not many attention. women did get executed. It's particularly at that time and white women. Mm-hmm. So and she does have some stuff in common with a couple of women we featured before. Mm-hmm. Namely, Emily and um, Lita, mm-hmm. but she's she's nastier than even them, I think. And oh yeah, so shall we share who it is? Oh yes, get started. Well, let's talk about Rhonda Bell Martin. So I have to say, Rhonda Bell Tomley Martin is a bit of a puzzle. I didn't find the usual articles on her childhood or even much about her married life other than the bare facts of them. But there are a few tasty tidbits as we go along. But first let's just start with the facts. Rhonda Belt, uh, birth name Tomley, seems to have been born January 1st, 1907, we think. We haven't found <laughs> her birth certificate. Um, Or any birth record. (laughs) Exactly. No birth record. Uh, In God knows where, because I don't. And there Mm -hmm. is no record I could find of her exact birthplace. That I do have. Oh, you do? What is it? Well, I don't have the exact. I have an idea of the exact, but she was born in Alabama. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, Thank you for confirming that, because I was going to say she was born in Alabama, but I couldn't even find confirmation for that. Yeah, so. census records. I oh. do at least have that much. Fantastic. Uh, 
Well, she seems to have had two brothers and a sister, and then an adopted half-brother from later on. She seems to have liked her dad more than her mom, only because, you know, she killed her mom, but she did not kill her dad. <laughs> and well, that she, could be a product of opportunity, though. That, that's entirely true. She reportedly took jobs as a waitress when she needed the income, but that doesn't seem to be a, have been a career as such. Um, she was a woman who liked her drinky drinks to the point of being a problem. <laughs> and, as we see with most of our ladies who kill, she was the marrying type. In fact, how many times was she married, Denise? Oh, gosh, five. Ding, 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 ding. You win something. <laughs> I don't know what that would be, but I'll figure that out later. Oh, uh, I remembered. <laughs> so, so, let's go over her many marriages. Mm-hmm. So, she first married W.R. Alderman in 1922 and was separated in 1926. I'm not entirely sure exactly when the divorce happened. Mm-hmm. Um, of note, she was 15 years old. So yep. she was a baby when she got married and not, she was only 19 when she got divorced or at least left the marriage. Do you know much about W.R.? I don't know much at all about W.R. I can fill you in. Tell I us. I figure I can fill us in on some of this stuff because it's dealing with her life. His name was Willie Robert, okay. and he was a World War I veteran, which means he was quite a bit older than her. He was 27 when they got married. Ew. Yeah. That's oh, it. is that it? Okay. Yeah, I was oh, like, yeah. I thought you had but, some oh, salacious great stories. <laughs> they got divorced around 1926 is what people okay. suppose. Okay. So then, a couple years later, again, still very young, Mm -hmm. she married George W. Garrett in 1928. Now, he died in 1939. She Mm -hmm. married Talmadge John Gibson in 1939 and separated from him in also 1939, although (laughs) I believe the divorce was actually happened a couple years after that. I believe so. She then... Had a stint on her own. I guess she was trying to find herself or something. And she, <laughs> she then, in 1950, got married to Claude Carroll Martin, who already had three daughters and a son, and he died in 1951. Rhonda then married his son, ew, mm-hmm. Ronald Martin, in 1951, and separated in 1957. Now, you might ask, how did she get all these men to marry her? I mean, she wasn't a looker, she had no money, and her personality was a little variable. Well, she employed that time-honored method used throughout the ages. She got them drunk. Oh, (laughs) jeez. So, Rhonda only had children herself with George W. Garrett, and she had five children. Now, none of those children survived to adulthood. Imogene was born in 1934 and died at the age of three in 1937. Anne Carolyn was born in 1933 and died at the age of six in 1940. Ellen Elizabeth was born in 1932 and died at the ripe old age of 11 in 1943. Mm. Mary Adelaide Garrett was born in 1930 and died in 1934. And Judith Garrett was born in 1938 and died in 1949. Now, we'll dig into that a little bit more later, but you know, I have to say, Miss Rhonda was super organized because she had everyone buried near each other in the same cemetery. She even had the remains of the first wife of Claude Martin moved to be next to him. What? I missed that part. Yes. Now, even though death surrounded her, she was not investigated for any kind of malfeasance until her final husband, Ron Martin, 
became very ill and the VA hospital shout out to the VA um, (laughs) where he was treated noticed that hey this man seems to be getting poisoned this made investigators think huh maybe this Miss Rhonda wasn't actually just a tragic figure but a murderer most foul yeah yeah right now it kind of boggles me that they hadn't really thought about that before but okay okay well, yeah considering how many people had died up until that point like deaths that were around her, her. yeah mm-hmm. so they exhumed claude martin's body discovered rat poison in his system and then arrested the beleaguered miss Rhonda. she then confessed to killing husbands garrett and martin senior plus two of her children and her mother and to poisoning martin jr Now, Ron Martin, by the way, was left a paraplegic from the poisoning. Mm -hmm. Bad. So why didn't she just kill her husband, Talmadge Gibson? He feels she just didn't have time to because their marriage was so short, about five months. Now, oddly, Rhonda had told Talmadge all of her children were dead. But at the time she was married to him, she still had two living daughters. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious as to where were those daughters And um, he had mentioned in an article that that Denise gave me that she would make trips out of town. And so it's possible she was visiting them. But literally, according to him, she would sometimes just sit and stare at these two photos she had of her children that sat on the mantelpiece Mm -hmm. and would say she wished that they were still alive. And yeah, like so creepy, so creepy. So, I mean. The only I could figure is maybe they were, the children were staying with her mother. That is time. that is entirely possible. I'd have to double check the timeline, but I, I mean it's possible because I believe her mother was killed in 1944, wasn't she? Yes. And so that would have been her mother would have still been alive at that time. That's what I thought, but I'm like, so I'm gonna remind myself. No, her mother was dead when they got married. Okay, let me look again when they got married. 1939 and separated in 1939. Wasn't I have a different date. Of what? For the marriage. He, she married him, according to the marriage records, uh-huh. from Alabama okay. on August 11th, 1947. Really? Yes. That is interesting. Now I've got to go, okay, where did I get the 1939 date? But... I don't know. That means all her children were dead when they Wow. Okay. Wow. Thank you for digging up that. Thank you for digging that up. I can see somebody having that misinformation out there. Well, I definitely caught it. So that means her, her big lonely time, for lack of a better word, was from 1939 till 1947, you said? Seven. To 1947. So, you know, that actually makes it a little more clear why she would have killed her remaining children you know I mean other than the Mm -hmm. fact we don't really know why she killed her children but I kept wondering why did she have them why did she do it so far apart you know right so okay that's very interesting although there was one daughter that died in 1949 no when did she pass away okay Um, Uh, it was Judith Garrett Judith died in 1939 okay my dates are all messed up okay Whoever I ripped this information from, I... And I got that from Find a Grave. Oh, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. It's so funny because I'd actually corrected a couple of dates from Find a Grave, but I didn't Mm -hmm. do all the children. Thank you for correcting that. And I think I might, like, email the place where I got that information and inform them that they're wrong. (laughs) Not that they care what I think, but I'm so glad. See, and this is... I have all their obituaries, I believe, that I could find. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. You're so good. So I will post those on the website so people can see those as well. 
Thank you. See, this is why you're the brains of this operation. <laughs> I don't know. You're pretty darn smart. Ha. I'm just the re- I'm just the research person. <laughs> hey, I'll take every compliment I can get. See, where are we at? So, okay, so she's gone on this horrible killing spree over the course of all these years. And she maintained, however, her entire life that the two of her daughters, Judith and Mary, she did not actually kill. Mm-hmm. That seems highly unlikely, but. Right. So her defense was not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity. So basically her defense was, I didn't do it, but if I did do it, I was nuts. Now, <laughs> this doesn't sound as unusual as you might think. That's often how guilty pleas are coupled together, especially back right. in the day. What's interesting is using an insanity defense. You're basically saying, yeah, I did it, but I didn't know what I was doing at the time I was doing it. Yeah. But there is that association of guilt. So it's really, and and of course, that particular pleas evolved a lot over the last few decades, but it is kind of interesting. So her surviving husband, her surviving former husband, of course, Talmadge Gibson, felt that, you know, she wasn't insane. He felt the life insurance the deceased had was a more likely motivator, and he described her more with manipulative traits than somebody who was actually mentally ill. So the judge and jury must have agreed with Talmadge because Miss Rhonda was convicted of the murder of Claude Martin and sentenced to death by the electric chair. Now, she was never charged or convicted with any of the other murders. I suspect it's because they felt since she's getting killed, you can't kill people more than once. That's my guess. Yeah. And they already had, you know, solid proof. So there wasn't any need to go digging around in the rest of them. She was electrocuted on October 11th, 1957. Here's a fun fact, though. When they first flipped the switch, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Turns out they hadn't plugged it in properly. So they fixed that and went on with the execution. So why did Rhonda Bell Martin kill all these people? It's kind of doubtful it was for the life insurance money because it wasn't very much. And basically most of it went for the funerals. Yeah. Attention? Possibly. It's noted she enjoyed giving the attention that being a grieving mother and a widow got her. But no one really knows, not even really Rhonda herself. After she died, a note she had written was found in her Bible. The note said, At my death, whether it be a natural death or otherwise, I want my body to be given to some scientific institution to be used as they see fit, but especially to see if someone can find out why I committed the crimes I have committed. I can't understand it, for I had no reason whatsoever. There is definitely something wrong. Can't someone find it and save someone else the agony I have been through? What I find interesting about that note is that it is entirely a self-centered note. Yes. Particularly when she says, I want to save someone else the agony I have been through. Not the agony she caused others. <laughs> you know? But it was all about herself. And so that's why I look at this and think this could be another form of manipulation. where. She- well, yeah. And then it's also that self-centered, like, she's not wanting to spare anybody their agony. Agony. She's wanting to know why she was the way she was. She didn't care about anybody else. Mm-hmm. Of course, she would never know because she'd be dead. Exactly. It's just one of these things where I think she was just manipulative till the end. Um, mm-hmm. And this could be, again, you know, I've mentioned demons before. Uh, perhaps right. she was just, you know, possessed or something. But I just, I mean, obviously never going to get that proof. But I look at this and go, this was a woman who... I really, when it comes down to it, feel she just really enjoyed the power of killing people. Oh, I think that's a lot of it. And we'll really get there and explore why. Because I didn't really see anything in her family tree that had me going, aha. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, there wasn't anything like that. Well, and I have to admit, I was a little puzzled considering this is a pretty recent criminal that Mm -hmm. there wasn't anything that 
I mean, normally there would be tons of stories digging into her childhood, digging into, you know, the psychology behind it. Because, you know, we're talking, you know, she was executed in the 50s. So, I mean, that's pretty recent, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing. I mean, I could not find a single thing other than, you know, facts and figures. But I couldn't find any articles on here was her experience of childhood. They didn't seem to have interviewed any of her siblings about any of it. So it's been interesting. So, Denise, what have you got for us? There could be reasons for that. We were talking about, you know, she was born in 1907 in Alabama. I probably could come up with the area of Alabama. It was probably around the Mobile area of Alabama. Okay. Because that's where she lived as a child. So that's my guess. But, I mean, I don't have any confirmation. And she was the daughter of parents James Tomley and Mary Frances Grimes. She was the third of four children to the Tomleys. She spent most of her childhood years either in Bay Minette or Mobile, Alabama. Hmm. Those are towns within about 35 miles of each other. Now, I do have a few notes I took on their her husbands and kids, stuff that you would not necessarily be able to find. So, first husband, Willie Robert, we already talked about him. Post-divorce, he got married to a woman by the name of Laura Bell, which I found funny. That is weird. He married Rhonda Bell, and he divorced her and then married a Laura Bell. Um, Bell was a pretty popular lady's name at the time, though. Yeah, I believe so. But he lived actually a long life, so he should be grateful he divorced her when she did, or she divorced him. (laughs) Um, He died at at the age of 84 in Florida. The second husband, George Garrett, was actually George Wirtlaw Garrett. His parents were George Sr. and Mary Tharp, and he was 35 at his death on Christmas Eve. He died at 3.30 a.m. that morning. Now, they got married in May 1928, and he worked as a switchman on the railroad. Now, third husband, Talmadge John Gibson, he was 50. She was 40 when they got married. He lived an extra long life, too. He died at the age of 93 in 1989. Claude Martin, you mentioned his first wife, And I looked her up. Her name was Edith Bessie Brown. And they lived in Washington, Pennsylvania until the mid-1940s. Interesting. In fact, Claude was from West Virginia originally. Hmm. So I believe they moved down in the mid-1940s. His wife died in November 1948 in a car accident. Wow. That's so sad. And he married Rhonda 11 months after her death. I imagine a man with five ki- four kids would be highly motivated to remarry. Yeah, but I believe most of those kids were grown mm. and flown. Okay. I mean, that does make sense. Well, no, that's not true, actually. I think the younger, the girls were a little younger because I believe Robert was the oldest. Okay. Um, but then he was murdered by, you know, Rhonda 18 months after they got married. And, of course, Ronald C. Martin married Rhonda nine months after his dad died. He was 24. She was 44. She was the original cougar. Wow. I mean, yeah. it's gross when it goes the other way too. But isn't something yeah. feel just even a little more gross when mm-hmm. the person's like 21, <laughs> you know, and that's such a huge age gap, you know? Right. And here's an interesting fact on this though. So it was made a big deal of at the time, is that she might have broken more than one law. And one of those laws was, oh, shoot, incest. Mm-hmm. Because in Alabama at the time, it was Ill, considered incest if you married a stepchild or step parent, mm-hmm. 
which I understand the preference, the preference. <laughs> I understand the meaning behind the law. Mm-hmm. Although I do think if you are of a certain age and marrying somebody with adult children. Yeah, it's totally different then. You don't have that icky factor yeah. to it that you have when it's, you know, they were literally under your care and then you marry them. That's. But then you know. I saw you nodding your head and I cannot remember with what husband this was the issue. But it turns out she wasn't actually divorced from Talmadge. Was yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they got so she wasn't married to Talmadge when she got married to Claude or Ronald. No, the divorce. Okay, so she did get divorced from Talmadge eventually, and it happened right. while she was married. It looks like it happened while she was married to to uh, Martin Senior. Oh, Claude. Claude. Yeah. And that's so, it. but so that marriage wasn't valid when it was consummated. So then it made the fact that, that Ronald Martin was never actually legally her stepson. That's right. I couldn't remember all the details, but I thought I should bring that up really quick. It's so crazy. Now, I'm going to go in the order of the death of her kids Okay. and what they occurred. The first child to die was Mary Adelaide. Now, she was born in September 1930. And on January 11th, 1931, I found an article in the Montgomery Advertiser. And it said, baby, ill at home. And it was referencing them that she she was four months old and she was at home ill with her mom. Oh. February 22nd, 1931. So just over a month, six weeks later, maybe. Mrs. George Garrett and little daughter Mary Adelaide with Mrs. Jeannie Jones, that's George's sister, left Friday for Atlanta where Mary Adelaide will be under medical treatment at Piedmont Hospital. Hmm. So now she's five months old. Then July 5th, 1931, Adelaide ill at Hubbard's Hospital following an operation. Hmm. She's 10 months old. May 29th, 1932, ill at home. Wow. And then her death was in January 1934, where it says she died after a short illness. So it makes me wonder, was the child really ill? Mm-hmm. And it's possible she was. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, as far as we know, Rhonda hadn't killed anybody at this point. And did she get off on the attention she was getting every time her daughter was sick? Mm-hmm. You know? And, and maybe she started getting her daughter sick again. Mm-hmm. It crossed a line and she got even more attention. But that's my theory. Munchausen's by proxy is very mm-hmm. real. And yes. yeah. Uh-huh. But she learned from this experience because I could never find an article about a child being sick thereafter. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure she's like, oh, we don't want to get a lot of attention for this. Because this is back in the time somebody would just send in a little snippet. Oh, we're oh, at home because so-and-so sick. Mm-hmm. You know, even in a paper like in a town like Montgomery, which isn't small mm-hmm. by any means. But, but the second daughter to die was Emma Jean. She was three years old. It was 1937. Judith came next. She was nine months old at her death. And there was a note in the paper that, she, or some in her um, obituary, I believe, saying that she died after a brief illness at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, number four was Anna Caroline. Um, she was age six or seven. And again, it was her death came after a brief illness at the hospital. And please note that Anna died five months after her dad died. Wow. So 1939. And the last one, of course, was Ellen Elizabeth, age 11. Her obituary stated that she died after a long illness. 
Well, and the thing that just breaks my heart is, you know, the way she was choosing to poison all these people around her was that instead mm-hmm. of giving one big dose, she was giving tiny, tiny doses over a long period of time. Right. And, I mean, the cruelty of it, the daily cruelty. The pain yeah. those kids and her husbands must have been in. Yeah, and that she's witnessing their pain and suffering and continues to poison them. Oh, yeah. She was getting off on it, not on necessarily their pain and suffering, but the attention she was probably getting from it, mm-hmm. from them suffering. Mm-hmm. Yep. From being needed. And isn't it odd that she herself never came down with any of those illnesses? Yeah, that is. Hmm. <laughs> Very odd. Because I not once saw an article about her being at home because she was sick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to go to her parents. Like I said, her dad was James Robert Tomley and mom was Mary Frances Grimes. And they were both from Alabama. In fact, the biggest note and the biggest thing I could say is her family was from Alabama. I mean, they were deep had been there for a long time. Um, her parents got married on December 18th, 1902 in Baldwin County, Alabama. That's where Bay Manette is. It's on the southeastern part of Alabama's boot heel, basically just right to the east of Mobile Bay Okay. in that area. They would have at least four children, Ralph Marvin, Louise Kay, Rhonda, and Brother Murray. Now, let me tell you a little bit about her brother, Ralph. Um, he was the oldest. And at the age of 17, it seems Ralph was arrested. It's possible it was a different Ralph Tomley. Um, but I tried to look and I couldn't find any other Ralph Tomleys, even in the United States, much less the South. So from the Aniston Star on the 10th of February, 1921, and you're going to love the headline, everybody. It's one of the originals. Florida man is held in Mobile on theft charge. <laughs> Florida man. Is he the original Florida man? <laughs> I'm thinking he might be. So it says, Ralph Tomley is being held by Mobile police on advice from the Pensacola officials. It is alleged that Tomley is wanted in the Florida city for robbing a blind man of $32 and also theft of a suitcase said to belong to President Reese of one of the Pensacola banks. Wow. Now, I never saw what happened to him from there and on, but I believe soon after, or maybe around that same time, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy. And he straightened his life out, actually, and he got a job working as a yeoman. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, sometime between 1921 and 1928, while he was in the Navy, he ended up in Shanghai, China. And then on June 16, 1928, Ralph got married to Polish national... Fima Adamovna Neverovakaya? Neverovakaya, I think. We'll go with that because I have no idea. Okay. And they got married at the U.S. Court for China um, in Shanghai. Now, 10 months later, they would have their first son, Ralph Jr., in in Manila, Philippines. Mm -hmm. So they were traveling and everything all in Southeast Asia. Then just over a year later, they had their next and last son, Charles, in Shanghai. Now, this birth made the papers. Oh, tell me more. Yeah. Um, Was it the first baby born on New Year's? No, nothing that great. Oh, man. And this is from the Oakland Tribune on July 7th, 1933. And the headline says, Birth Tangle Straightened. The international complications which beset Yeoman Ralph Tomley, United States Navy, stationed at Moffett Field, Naval Air Station here, had been solved today, after he consulted a naturalization expert. Tomley, an American citizen, married a Polish girl in Shanghai, China, 
Their first child, a son, Ralph Jr., was born in Manila, Philippines, and was an American citizen. But their second child, Charles, was born in the French concession at Shanghai. Both France and China claimed young Charles as a subject. (laughs) He learned that the United States will recognize as an American citizen any child of American parentage, no matter where the child was born, so long as the father maintains his citizenship. So that got all solved. Yay! I'm so glad. Because you don't want to pay taxes to three countries. (laughs) No. I just love that the French and China are like, oh, they're ours. He's ours now. Um, When World War II began, Ralph um, did remain in the Navy. And I found this interesting tidbit from the San Pedro News pilot from California on the 16th of April, 1945. Ralph M. Tomley, a Navy warrant ship's clerk, yesterday reported back to his ship, concluding a 16-day leave here with his wife, Fema, and two sons, Ralph Jr., 14, and Charles, 13. Stationed aboard a light carrier, Tomley witnessed the gigantic typhoon, which several months ago swallowed up three U.S. destroyers. Although a veteran of 19 years Navy service, he said this storm to be by far the worst he has ever seen. He entered naval aviation in 1935 following service on surface and submarine craft. During 1942 and 1943, he flew as a combination gunner and clerk with a PBY squadron, which patrolled for subs off Newfoundland and Iceland. Wow. Yeah. I asked my husband, a meteorologist, (laughs) about the typhoon, and he goes, I don't remember it's hearing that it swallowed up ships, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Is he into the the history of meteorology? (laughs) Actually, he is. Side note, the National Weather Service celebrated their 150-year anniversary recently, and he was part of the project that did a history and put out everything. He got recognition for the work he did. That's so cool. Most of the stuff that was written up on the website came from my husband. Yay, Denise's husband. Sadly, Ralph would die young, long before his sister's arrest. Mm. But luckily, it was not by his sister's hands because he was nowhere near her. (laughs) (laughs) He died at age 46 in Anacortes, Washington on January 17, 1950, likely while working as his wife was living and children were living in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Actually, his children weren't living in Albuquerque at the time. His sons had both joined the Navy themselves and were in Kansas at the time of his death. Oh, my goodness. And I have no idea what the cause of death was or anything. Mm-hmm. No amount of searching helped me on that. I mean, I guess I could pay for a death certificate, but I'm not putting that much money into this. <laughs> we should probably have a donation bucket for people who, like, really want to know the answers to things and let yeah. them pay for it. <laughs> and we'll- That would be cool. <laughs> um, I mean, I should set something up for us on that, but... And part of it's because some of the certificates and stuff are like forty dollars mm-hmm. nowadays, so it's not as cheap as it used to be. Yeah. Okay, interestingly enough, and this is probably why there wasn't a whole lot written on her childhood. Not one of James and Mary Tomley's children would live beyond the age of sixty-six. Hmm. Louise and Murray both died at the age of sixty-one. They didn't live exceptionally long lives. Now, the marriage of James and Mary must have been a rocky one because it did not last. And this is where timing gets tricky because James and Mary were probably still married on January 1st, 1920, because they are listed living together on the 1920 census. And the instruction on that census was to count people who lived in that residence as of January 1st. Mm -hmm. The census was counted in Mobile, where the family lived, on January 17th. And it seems they all lived together. According to the 1930 census... James and Mary were no longer married to each other. James was now married to Nora Briars, 
a woman 10 years his junior, and they had two children, mm. Thomas Truxton and Zama. And based on their ages and according to the census records, because in 1930 it asked how long you had been married or what age was your first marriage. Anyhow, how it was phrased, it looked like they were likely married in 1922, but they could have been married as early as 1921. Okay. As for Mary, she had married Sidney Gibbon around 1921, an immigrant from Canada. In their home was a daughter, Mary L. Gibbon, age nine, an adopted daughter. Now, young Mary lived a long life, well longer than any of her other siblings, dying in 1998 at age 77. And that's all I knew until I did one last search preparing for this episode. And I happened to stumble on an article that changed all my assumptions. Oh my gosh. So the article I stumbled on was from the Mobile News Item on the 20th of March, 1924. And it really caught my attention. But before I go there, let me explain this. Rhonda's sister Louise got married sometime around or before 1920. She would have likely been 15 or 16 when she got married. No older. To a man by the name of Carl Fry, F-R-E-I. And he was just two years her senior, so it wasn't like it was as gross as others <laughs> in late 1920. They had a daughter named Mary Louise. I know all this because of the article I found, because Louise did not leave much of a paper trail at all, anywhere. Like, I couldn't find her in the 1920 census, no matter how I tried. Couldn't find Carl in the 1920 census, much less their daughter. And trust me, I looked... <laughs> And then I wasn't really able to find Louise after that either. Hmm. But then here goes that article I found. The headline really grabs you. Charge mother kidnapped child. Three persons arrested at Mobile on complaint of Mississippi relatives. Mrs. Louise Fry, her mother, Mrs. Mary Gibbons, and Sydney Gibbons are held at the Mobile County Jail on warrants from Jackson County, Mississippi charging that they kidnapped Mary Louise Fry, three years of age, from the home of her grandmother, Mrs. W. Fry, living in Pascagoula, Mississippi. The three arrested here on complaint of the Mississippi authorities live at 213 South Jefferson Street. Sheriff Easel of Jackson County arrived in Mobile this afternoon to return them to Pascagoula, but they refused to go to Mississippi without extradition papers. They have engaged the services of Tisdale Tuart, Mobile attorney was expected to bring habeas corpus proceedings in a local court Friday for the release of the prisoners. Mrs. Louise Fry, mother of the child alleged to have been kidnapped, admits taking the child from Mississippi to her mother's home in the city, but claims a right to the custody of the little girl and protests that she has not been divorced from the father of the child, nor has she signed any legal papers surrendering the child to the custody of its grandparents in Pascagoula. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I had problems finding Louise on the paper trail. Couldn't find her in the 1930 census either or the 1940. I wanted to know what happened to her and Mary Louise. But I do know that she got remarried and she died in 1970. Um, and I know this because the Alabama Death Index lists her parents as herself and her married name is Reed. So as I'm looking at everything and I'm trying now to find Mary Louise, the daughter, <laughs> it hits me. Mary Louise is Mary L. Gibbons on the 1930 census living with Mary Frances Grimes and her second husband, Sidney Gibbons. Mm -hmm. They had adopted the grandchild. Okay. It wasn't her daughter. It was her granddaughter. Okay. That all makes sense. Mm -hmm. And we don't really know what happened to the daughter. No. I, I, other than I know she lived until 1970. One last quick note. I did see a brief mention in a newspaper article. One I did not send you. I found it like in the last couple of days. 
And it was a brief mention saying that Rhonda's brother Murray came to visit her at the prison. And it said she has a sister named Louise. But actually, I think they said, how did they put that? I, I don't remember how they put it, but they know that she had zero relationship with her sister and hadn't been in touch with her for years. Wow. Again, I think that also would lead to why there was no information forthcoming is because they weren't talking. Yeah. Murray and Louise both died in 1970. They were the last ones to be living. So they all died within 13 years of... So the first one to die was Ralph Marvin in 1950, then Rhonda in 1957, Louise and Murray in 1970. So they did not have long lives. Okay, now we go on to the maternal line and learn more about murder victim and mother, Mary Grimes. Mm-hmm. Mary Grimes Tomley Gibbon was the second child to Williamson or William Grimes and Mary Elizabeth Lane. She was born in May 1885. Her older brother was a Rufus Marvin, and he moved to Wells, Texas after living in Georgia, then Louisiana, while working for the railroad. He was a telegraph operator. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. But by 1920, he and his family lived in Texas full-time in Wells. And in 1928, he was elected into office as the mayor of Wells, winning by a vote of three to one. (laughs) Yes, that town was small. (laughs) And he continued his job there in Texas on the telegraph for the railroad. Rufus died of malaria at the age of 59 in 1941. And by the way, Wells, Texas is a really small town even to this day. Um, the largest I think the town ever got was like close to 800, and that's current. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, it's a really tiny town. It's south of Tyler, Texas by about 70 miles. I actually know where Tyler, Texas is. Yeah, it is uh, not a very big town. No, it's not. But most people have heard of Tyler. Mm-hmm. It's just weird. Uh, Mary had five more siblings plus one half-sibling, which leads me to her parents, Rhonda's grandparents. Mary Elizabeth Lane was born on October 3rd, 1855 in Alabama. I don't know much about her parents. I have ideas of who they could be, but no definitive proof. Because Mary Lane is not exactly an uncommon name. True. There are some trees out there that have suggestions. It's possible that they're spot on, but I don't have enough information to verify. At the age of 18 in 1874... Elizabeth, and that's what she most often went by instead of Mary Elizabeth, um, married J.R. Grimes. They would have one son, William H. Grimes, around 1875. But the marriage was short-lived as J.R. died before 1879. And Elizabeth married Williamson Grimes, a man five years her junior from Monroe County. And was that the brother of the first Grimes? No, it was not the brother. I'm not even sure how they were related. Uh-huh. I think it's most likely that they were cousins, Okay. but I have no idea because I don't even know what the J stood for. Oh. I suspect he was a J.B. Grimes, not J.R., and I think I might know, but I have no, again, no confirmation. Wow. But the one I think it was died at about the right time and it would have been a cousin. Okay. But anyhow, they were, he was from Monroe County, and we're going to talk about Monroe County quite a bit, and it's the county just to the south of where they were living. Hi, welcome to The Jury Room, a true crime podcast. My name is Kevin, and I will be your host on this journey. We will be covering some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever be committed against humanity. 
we will be covering cannibalistic serial killers, decades-old unsolved mysteries, cold cases, missing person cases, and everything in between. The Jury Room Podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Please make sure you go subscribe and leave a review. William was born March 1860 at Monroe County, Alabama. And on the 1880 census, I noticed that Elizabeth and William had an orphan living with them in addition to her son, William, her son with her former husband. And the child's name was Buck Grimes. He was eight and he was black. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, he's listed orphan. Now this is 1880. So if this had been 1870, I would suspect it was tied to slavery mm-hmm. in some way. With this, I'm not sure. Hmm. I did try to find out what happened to Buck with no success. And my guess is part of that's because Grimes was never his last name. Okay. They just listed his last name while he was living with the Grimes family. Okay. Hmm. William worked as a farmer as their family grew. By 1900, the family moved south to Baldwin County, living first in Bay Minette. Then after 26 years of marriage, Elizabeth died in September 1905 at the age of 49. So young. Yes, very young. William moved from there to Daphne, Alabama by 1910, then to Robertsdale in 1920. And Daphne, Alabama is right along Mobile Bay in Baldwin County. Robertsdale is about 40 miles to east of Daphne. So he was like, goes south, then goes to east. By 1930, William gave up his own farm. He lived with his son, Walter, in Crawford, Alabama, which is on the west side of Mobile. He'd remain there until his death at age 80 in May 1940. So he lived a nice long life. William's father was Daniel Marvin Grimes, and he was born in 1832 in Monroe County, Alabama to Alan Monroe Grimes and Elizabeth Barnes. On October 4th, 1852, he married Frances McMillan, daughter of Williamson McMillan and Caroline Anderson. And I love the names because you hear, you see it played out later with the, how they named their kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, William's father is Daniel and his grandfather is a Williamson, and that's how he got his name, Williamson, but he went by William because it was probably easier. Um, anyhow, Francis was born in December 1834 in Daphne, Alabama. By 1862, they had five children, or at least only five living. Margaret, Caroline, Columbus Allen, Williamson, Johnny, who died at the age of two, and Amanda. Oh, they had six children, only five living, I should say. Wow. The Civil War was raging at this time, and like many men of his age, Daniel enlisted. He joined up with Company H of the 42nd Alabama Volunteers, where he'd serve until the war ended. Now, I did find interesting, these are some Confederate, you know, this is a Southern family that did not own slaves. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't realize most Confederate soldiers did not own slaves. Mm -hmm. Did they support the South and their right to? Yes. I don't know that all did. I think they just thought they were protecting their home. But I can't speak on that because I don't know. Um, A about the 42nd Alabama Volunteers, it fought at the Battle of Corinth, and we've talked about the Battle of Corinth before. We've had a couple of um, ancestors from other families there. While they were at the Battle of Corinth, though, his unit or his regiment lost 50% of the 700 men engaged in that battle. So by December 1863, only 311 men remained. He was one of them. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. So can you imagine the memories that they he had to deal with. Wow. After the war, Daniel returned to farming, and he and Elizabeth had five more children. 
Yes. By 1901, Daniel was unable to work due to a disability of some kind. Um, I was reading these paperwork on this and I could not read the handwriting. <laughs> Must have been written by a doctor. <laughs> now, let's talk about civil war and pensions. So if you were a Union soldier and you had, let's say you left a child, you died at battle, you left a child behind, there was a child pension. So the child, the dependent could get some money. It wasn't a lot, but to help provide. A widow's pension also applied. And at first it was, were you harmed in battle? You got a pension. And eventually there was, a, it turned into an old age pension. As they got older, they were wanting to take care of the veterans, the U.S. government was. Well, the Confederates were a little different because they didn't have that central government at, at all. Mm -hmm. It was all left to the states. Mm -hmm. So they did get a pension. I believe it was in some part supported by the U.S. government, but it only went to the indigent mm -hmm. and the invalids. Mm -hmm. So you had to have some kind of disability. And, and let's talk about that for just a second since you brought it up. Mm -hmm. I, I find it fascinating because at the time, you know, the Confederate soldiers were pretty upset that they weren't going to get a pension. And mm -hmm. it's like, okay, why would we pay you a pension when you were trying to kill us? Right. You know, and so I think it was very generous of the United States government to give any kind of fund for that sort of thing. Oh, you know? I think so too. It was a treasonous act. Yes. Yes, it was. And they supported the treasonous act. It, you know, I'm not... Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, before I have people from the South losing their minds, I have relatives from the South. I have some relatives not on my direct line, but that were served on the side of the Confederacy. Well, actually, that's not true. My direct line, I do have Confederates. We'll find that out on a future episode. But I think if you're going to do that, you're going to make that decision, it comes with consequences. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite sure had the South won, they would not have been kind to the Union soldiers. Oh, no. Oh, no. At all. Are you kidding me? They would have enslaved anybody they could have. Right. Yeah. I mean, they they were very cruel in many ways to anybody they captured. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I have no doubt that that would have happened. So I thought that was generous on the U.S. part. So good point. But um, how I found a lot of Daniel's information about his time in the Civil War is I found his application for pension, ah. which means he had a disability or he was indigent. Now, at the time of his application, and he was claiming a disability, but he owned no property, which makes sense. He was living with his son, but he did own three horses, eight heads of cattle, plus one hog, and his personal estate was valued with all those animals at a whopping $320. Wow. Those animals must not have been in very good shape. Well, you know, it's funny as I found somebody else's and I'm not going to go over his application, although I probably should find it and share it anyway. But the guy lists nine hogs worth nine dollars. Huh. And I'm like, wow. And then like this guy owned land. He had 60 acres and valued it at $90. I wonder if there were taxes involved somehow. That seems like a very low valuation. Right? So anyhow, five years later, Daniel died and his wife applied for the widower's pension. And she qualified as well. Her personal estate was valued at $185. So money went down. She had two horses, six cattle, eight hogs, one clock. Yes, if you had a clock, you had a market. My goodness. Although back then clocks weren't like necessarily an everyday item. True. And one vehicle. I'm imagining some sort of cart. Francis would die two years later in April 1908. So it seems like from what you're sharing, that mm -hmm. um, Rhonda then would have had a slew of aunts and uncles, grandparents, and great aunts and great uncles 
And they're yeah. all living kind of around each other. Yes. So she grew up around them. Yeah. And they were all still alive while she was growing up. A good portion of them were. That I is... mean, may not when she, not maybe not when she started killing or <laughs> good definitely thing. not necessarily <laughs> when she was um, executed, but they were definitely around into her adulthood. Mm-hmm. Like her grandparents were alive when she was in her 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. some cases. It's just staggering. So she probably even met her because um, Frances would have been her great grandmother. Mm-hmm. She probably even met her. Wow. I don't have a whole lot of information to share on this, but I will say that Frances's parents were slave owners mm-hmm. and owned a number of slaves. But I don't get much further on that with them. But her husband, Daniel, was not from a slave owning family. Okay. Okay, now over to the paternal line. Her father, James Robert Tomley, was born in September 1882 in Baldwin County, Alabama. He was the third child and first son born to William Tomley and Ellen Allen. James' oldest sister was Mary Eva Tomley, born in 1876, and she did what we've seen time and time again. At the age of around 18, she married 33-year-old naval store operator Thomas Crosby. Ew. Yeah. They would have a few children, one being Albert Brown Crosby, who was born around 1896. But his life would not be a long one. And this is from The Onlooker. It's a paper out of Foley, Alabama on the 5th of November, 1931. Crosby dies of wounds and role as peacemaker. Gun wounds prove fatal to former druggist of Robertsdale. Acting in the role of peacemaker between a garage owner and a truck driver, A.R. Crosby, former druggist of Robertsdale and a brother of Martin Crosby, local druggist, was fatally wounded in a gun battle at Alberta City, Alabama at 7.30 a.m. Saturday. Crosby died a few hours later in the Druid City Hospital. He had been wounded in the hand and abdomen by a charge from a shotgun fired by John J. Shelton. Shelton, garage owner and Clarence N. Franklin, ice truck driver, met Saturday to continue an argument which they had begun several days before. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, but it's I can funny. see that, like, you know. Okay, yeah. I got to get home to the missus, so I will see you Saturday. Yeah, we're going to meet and we're going to hash this out. Crosby was accidentally shot by Shelton, who fired at Franklin as he attempted to separate the two men. Franklin returned Shelton's fire with a pistol and the latter was instantly killed. Mm. So Shelton did not make it out of the situation, nor did Crosby. Did they say what the argument was about? No, they never said, and I couldn't find anything more. I was curious what happened to Clarence Franklin. Did he go to jail? Uh Nothing. Wow. They probably saw it as self-defense. Yeah. And left it at that. And sometimes people just need killing. (laughs) You've said that before. (laughs) So that was not the only shocking death for the Crosby family. Now, I sent uh, Zelda a message earlier going, you know, when I'm writing this stuff down, I imagine your reactions. And this next story, like I said, not the only shocking death for the Crosby family, because earlier in 1931, Albert's younger sister died in an unexpected, and might I say, suspicious circumstance. Hmm. Foley woman drowns. Word was received in Foley Saturday night from the War Department in Nicaragua notifying the family of T.W. Crosby of the death of his daughter, Mrs. J.C. Torian, Miss Eloise Crosby, who was found missing from a steamer 19 miles out of Colin. Colin? I don't know. An hour was spent searching for the body in the water before continuing on their way. Complete details have not yet been received. Mrs. Torian went to Nicaragua several months ago to join her husband, who was stationed there with the U.S. Navy. And might I say how badly the editing was done on that article. 
So the article doesn't tell a whole lot of what happened other than she drowned off a steamer ship. Was she accompanied by her husband, does it say? No, it does not say that. Hmm. Was she accompanied by a one Rhonda? <laughs> no, Rhonda was nowhere around her. She was 30, but no. Um, now, the article doesn't tell the whole story, but on a consular report on American deaths abroad, I did find the following. But before I start... Ah, oh, you're killing me. <laughs> let me give you some background because, well, let's just, let's just say you need it. In the onlooker on the 12th of May, 1927, so four years prior, I found the following. Eloise Crosby lingers between life and death. Oh. Miss Eloise Crosby, 15 years old, is in serious condition in Pensacola Hospital as a result of a self-inflicted gunshot wound from a revolver at her home shortly before 8 o'clock Monday morning. The 45 caliber bullet went through the left side and is not known whether the shot was intentional or accidental. Oh my, that poor girl. Yeah. She was in the hospital for a long time, returning home in June. Now, being the 1920s and good at ignoring mental health signs, young Eloise got married on September 2nd, just another couple months later. Oh my gosh. So it's less than four months after the gunshot wound and her hospital admission. She may have been 16 by then, or she could have still been 15. I don't know. But she married a man by the name of Joseph Swan in a double wedding with a friend of hers in Santa Rosa, Florida. The marriage was short, though, because in October 1929, and this was before the big crash of 1929, Eloise got married to John Torian of Pensacola. Now, John Chambers Torian was 12 years her senior. Mm. So she, it's been two years since her first marriage. She's probably 17 or 18. Wow. when she married him. This is odd how many people in that family got married at the age of 15 or 16. It's like it was almost expected. Yeah. Yeah. So he was 28 and, you know, she was 17 or 18. John was also in the U.S. Navy at this point, hence why he was in Pensacola. Now, they get married 1929. Soon after they're married, he gets stationed to Port-au-Prince in Haiti. And she, within a month or two, moves out to be with him. Her husband then gets stationed to Nicaragua and she goes out and moves to be with him there. I'm assuming she was on the ship to come home, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure why she was on the ship or where she was headed. I do know that her husband was not on the ship at the time. Okay. And as far as I can tell, she wasn't on the ship with anybody. She was by herself. On January 16th, 1931 at 4.30 p.m., according to the captain of the American steamer, the Ecuador, Eloise jumped overboard when the ship was 70 miles out from Cartagena, Colombia. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. The poor woman. It was a suicide, according to the ship's staff. Mm -hmm. The steamer circled for 90 minutes in an attempt to find her with no success. It gets better. <laughs> there's Wait, there's more. Wow. Now, granted, who I'm talking about now is not related to Rhonda, but I figured it's part of the whole story and it gets better. Two months later, the widower, John Torian, was involved in a plane crash. I found the following in an old forum discussing military and Navy aviation. And they had posted this article from the New York Times and they were discussing it. And the article was from the 25th of March, 1931. And it was out of Managua, Nicaragua, where John was stationed. A Fokker trimotor transport plane of the United States Marines crashed today. No one was injured. Before arriving at Candiga, the ailerons of the plane locked, causing the crash. It goes on to imply that the passengers bailed from the plane before it crashed. Wow. Right? And according to the forum, one of the passengers was pharmacist's mate, J.C. Torian of the U.S. Navy. Wow. Now, John would marry again 
this time to Margaret Cheatham, who died at the age of 34. Wow. John was 40, so this is nine years after Eloise's death in July 1942. The cause of his second wife's death was listed as pulmonary embolism, infarction of the liver. Oh, my. I know that she had diabetes. Oh, my. He was a school teacher. I just find it interesting. Apparently, John would marry one more time. Luckily, this time his wife outlived him. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. I, I wonder if Eloise did jump and nobody, you know, pushed her or it was an accident. If while she was in Nicaragua, she and John were divorcing mm-hmm. and she was returning home. Mm-hmm. And that was her reaction. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. But so sad. She was so young. Mm-hmm. She would have only been like 19. Wow. Mm-hmm. Back to James. Um, James also had twin brothers. They were the youngest of his siblings, and they were Oscar and Ozzy. That's cute. <laughs> and sadly, Ozzy's twin Oscar died at the age of 23 in October 1915. No idea why. And he wasn't the only sibling to die young. Sisters Emma died at 33 and Lula at 45. Mm. Back to Ozzy, though. I've got a postmaster alert. <gasps> I love postmasters. I know. So this is Rhonda's uncle Ozzy. He was he was made postmaster at the ripe old age of 22. Oh my! In May 1914 for Perdido Station, Alabama. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Now Ozzy got married twice and had children with both women. With his first wife, they had a son they named Ozzy Jr. But and I found this on Find a Grave. After they divorced, his ex-wife, the mother of Ozzy Jr., changed Ozzy Jr.'s name. No, that's so mean. Yes, without telling anybody. Oh my gosh. She renamed him Eugene Crosby Tomley Jr. Well, she's like a horrible human being to rename a cool name like Ozzy to something like Eugene. I know, but I I get being really upset with your ex. Yeah, but, but still, no, no, you don't name. Mm. Well, and it, and I'm assuming that the young boy never took to his new name. No, because apparently, I mean, they he went by Gene, but everybody else called him Ozzy, and he just he yeah. knew himself as both. Now, was Ozzy short for anything, or that was no. his name was Ozzy? That was his name. O z z y. O z z i e. That wait, O z z. Do I have it right? I think that's O z z i e. Yeah. How curious! This is the first Ozzy. Like Ozzy Smith. Yeah, it's like the first Ozzy we've come across in all of this. Mm-hmm. I love it, Oscar and Ozzy. Uh huh. I love it. Another interesting note: his sister's daughter Mary wed Carol Briers. Carol was the nephew of James's second wife, Nora. Hmm. Okay. The father of James and his siblings, grandfather to Rhonda was William Britton Tomley, who was also called W.B. or Britt. Hmm. It just, I mean, I had to look up three different names of the paper to find anything on him. I had to look under William, W.B., and Britt. <clears throat> I think I got everything. And there's a lot <laughs> for him. Um, Britt was born at Baldwin County, Alabama in August 1854. Like son James, he was the third child and first son in his family. He grew up at his family farm helping his father then went on to be a farmer himself. On December 21st, 1875, W.B. married Ellen Lubisa Allen, the daughter of Pennsylvania native Washington Allen and his wife, Mary, who was from Alabama. Ellen was at least the eighth of 10 children, likely more, Oh my! but I wasn't necessarily all. Wow. And she was born in Alabama in January, 1856. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of babies. 
lot. Now, I found this little write-up on WB and the Standard Gauge on the 23rd of November, 1893. Mr. WB Tomley is one of those large-hearted men who will make you feel at home when you are at his house. He has a large family. Among them are twin, two twin Mustang boys who are worth a million apiece. Huh. He has a most excellent farm. His potatoes and cane are as fine as we ever saw. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And it seems he did more than just farm. At one point, or should I say multiple points, he was a Baldwin County Commissioner. Oh, my. Yes. I know he was commissioner on and off from 1901 to 1916, possibly earlier and later. I know he was running in 1916 for the position again, but I don't know if he won. (laughs) But based on my impression, he was very popular in the community. It's likely he won. And, you know, in the community paper, it would say what, you know, they're up to. And he would actually, I think, took that job as a commissioner seriously. He would take trips around the county visiting folks to see what was going on. Wow. And I found this letter to the editor from Christmas 1902, which I found to be a delight. And I thought you might enjoy. And this is from the Baldwin Times on Christmas Day, 1902. Dear Editor Times, I will give you a few items from this section of the country. Miss Layla Sermon is the guest of Miss Maddie McKenzie this week. Mr. James Tomley of this place was married to Miss Mary Grimes of Kearney on the 18th of this month. One of the soldier boys, Mr. John Weekly, is at home spending Christmas with his parents. Mr. Robert Tomley of this place is visiting his daughter, Mrs. J.W. Havard of Kipling. Papa and myself recently returned from a visit in the lower part of Baldwin County, where we have many relatives and friends. I am 14 years of age and have never visited that part of Baldwin before. My trip was a very pleasant one. We went through Halls Fork and Gateswood, crossed Hollinger's Creek and Sticks River. Swift and Lion are running a log business down there. Their railroad is about 16 miles long. They land the logs in Fish River at what is known as Taylor's Old Still at the head of Tidewater. From there, the logs are towed to the mill by tugboats. Papa and my uncles went fishing and oystering on Bon Secours while we were there. And I certainly enjoyed the fish and oysters. The people in Lower Baldwin are very good and kind, but they have no church or Sunday school. Brother Briars and Brother Lambert have been holding meetings recently, and the prospects for a church there soon are bright. South Baldwin is fast filling up with northern and, northern and western people. They have many nice farms and beautiful residences. Mr. Editor, I am a niece of the big, fat, jolly commissioner, Mr. W.B. Tomlin, of whom you spoke in the last issue of the Times, of which fact I feel very proud. This is my first letter to the Times, and if this escapes the wastebasket, I will write again. <laughs> I, wish the, <laughs> I wish the editor and readers of the Times a Merry Christmas, Geneva Tomley. Okay, that is just darling. Yes, that's why I'm like, I got to share the whole thing. Oh, that's a little bit of the a treasure. Last part. That's nice. Yep. So, in October 1925, Ellen Allen Tomley, W.B.'s wife, and Rhonda's grandmother died at Bruton, Alabama, a small town in Escambia County. Now, this county is to the east of Baldwin County and sits on the northernmost border of Florida. And if you cross the border, you enter Escambia County, Florida. Oh, my. So, it can be a little confusing when you're doing research. Two and a half years after the death of Ellen, W.B. married again to a woman 32 years his junior. Oh, my. Molly B. Owens. He was 73. She was 41. Wow. Yeah. Consenting adults and all, just huge age gap. She earned every penny. (laughs) By 1930, W.B. had retired from politics and farming and found himself working as a grocery store clerk. Hmm. He and Molly eventually moved across the border to Florida, 
where W.B. died at the age of 82 in 1937. His much younger wife lived until 1961. Wow. Now, how is it that Britton was such a jolly guy and his granddaughter a murderer? We may never know. Um, but let's move further back to W.B.'s father, Robert Tomley. Robert was born in Pulaski County, Georgia, which is pretty much in the center of the state, just south of Macon. He was born there in February 1828, and he was married to Eliza Ann Cooper, who was born in December 1831 in Georgia. She was the daughter of South Carolina natives Louis J. Cooper and Jane Coomba, and she was the second child and first daughter to her parents. Now, it's likely that Robert and Eliza met in Dale County, Alabama, as this is where Eliza lived with her family in 1850 census. Um, of course, I can't find him in the 1850 census to save my life, but I believe he was there. The couple likely married by early 1851 as their first child, daughter Elizabeth Jane, was born in October of that year. Okay. Then again, as we know, even back then, couples got married with a baby already on the way. <laughs> so you never know. By 1862, Robert and Eliza had six children. With the Civil War going on, Robert, like Daniel, felt compelled to enlist. He joined Company I of the 32nd Alabama Volunteers in February 1861. He would remain for the entirety of the war. Like in previous episodes, Robert's Confederate self was captured. He was captured in Dalton, Georgia on February 25th, 1864. Oh my goodness. Less than a month later, he was transferred. Now, it wasn't to a place we know so well. He was transferred to Fort Delaware. Oh. Up in Delaware. <laughs> um, where he spent the next 17 months until the war ended. It would have made more sense if he was in Alton, Illinois. I know. It just would have. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about Fort Delaware, which is now a state park, FYI. In 1794, it was identified as an ideal defensive site and was eventually made into a harbor defensive site with a, the fort and everything sitting on Pea Patch Island in the Delaware River. Wait, let's revisit that. Pea Patch Island? Yes, Pea Patch Island. Now that's adorable. Yeah, I like the name. I don't know. There must have been a pea patch there at some point, you would think. The structure that sits there today was built between 1848 and 1860. Once the Civil War began, the fort became a POW, a prisoner of war camp. From the Philadelphia Inquirer, it contained an average population of Southern tourists who came at the urgent invitation of Mr. Lincoln. Huh, that's curious. Why? Well, I, I mean, thought that was funny. He's like, you know, repping for the, the federal parks, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, this is from the Philadelphia Inquirer at the time. It was... During the, during the Civil War, okay. the Philadelphia Inquirer said the following, that Fort Delaware contained an average population of Southern tourists who came at the urgent invitation of Mr. Lincoln. Oh, okay, I get it now. Mm -hmm. I get it. Okay. I knew you would. It took me a moment. Oh, my God. I got to tell you, ever since I, I've been off my ADHD meds, like, I just am slow. My brain is slow. But now I get it's it. It's all good. Okay. While many of us have heard about the awful conditions at the Confederate POW camps, in particular at Andersonville, Fort Delaware was considered the Union equivalent. Mm. Although, unlike Andersonville's Henry Wirt, Brigadier General Albin Schopf actually followed Article 56 of General Orders, that a POW is subject to no punishment for being a public enemy, nor is any revenge wrecked upon him by the intentional infliction of any suffering or disgrace by cruel imprisonment, want of food, by mutilation, death, or any other barbarity. In other words, they were not torturing and starving mm -hmm. their uh, 
prisoners. Mm -hmm. And that was well known to happen actually in the Confederate prisons. Yep. That said, at the time Robert was there, the Union had learned of the conditions at Confederate prisoner war camps and how Union soldiers were being treated. In retaliation, the War Department ordered rations to be cut. Oh. Yeah, not good. Soldiers got two small meals per day at Fort Delaware, but they were also allowed to fish. Oh, well, at least there's that. And apparently if they had money, they could buy other rations. Mm -hmm. So, and that was probably more the officers than the enlisted guys. And the enlisted guys lived in like these barracks that were set up outside of the fort. Mm -hmm. And all the officers and stuff got to stay on the inside of the building. Interesting. Yeah. Well, hey, at least they got some food. Yep. After returning from war, Robert and Eliza would have two more daughters. The last was a surprise, Frances. She was born five years after the daughter before that. So, like, ooh, a celebration child, and then a, oops. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, sometimes the oops are the best. So, and sometime after the war, the family relocated to Baldwin County. In 1902, wife Eliza died at age 70. Now I'm going to share a couple items I found on Robert in the papers because I just found them to be either amusing or informative or both. You be the judge. Okay, I will be. (laughs) I know you will. (laughs) Uh, Okay, this first one is from the Baldwin Times on March 4th, 1897. And it's written by his son, W.B. Tomley. Quite a crowd of friends and relatives of Mr. Robert Tomley assembled on the 20th for the purpose of celebrating the old gentleman's 69th birthday. He was the recipient of many presents, and as everybody brought a basket of good things to eat, there was, of course, a big supper, after which there was a prayer by Reverend Jean Vane, and the evening passed off very pleasantly. Mr. Tomley is well known throughout Baldwin and is an old Confederate soldier. His many friends will rejoice to know that he is still in the land of the living. And then... This is from the Russell Register on the October 28th, 1910. And it's like they have a list of items going on in the area. And it starts with a very interesting set of figures has been compiled by Robert Tomley of Baldwin County, which show a remarkable list of relatives, including children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Mr. Tomley is 83 years old and is one of the pioneer residents of the county, having lived there the greater part of his life. He has five living children and two dead. These have offspring, which totals 37 living and eight dead, who are the grandchildren of the old man. There are 26 living great-grandchildren and two dead. The total number is 80, of which 12 are deceased. This is a remarkable record, and what is more, the old man knows them all and keeps an accurate count of them. He and his wife lived together 53 years, he having married when 22 years old. Oh my goodness. And Robert died just 12 days after that article was published at the age of 83. What a full and rich life. Yes. And that is the family tree of Rhonda Bell, Tomley, Alderman, Garrett, Gibson, Martin, Martin. (laughs) (laughs) The Martin, Martin. I love it. It tops it off. (laughs) You gotta go. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know, I just, I, I cannot help but think. There, there was no predicting Ron, Rhonda. Mm-hmm. And it just seems so odd. Right. That there's nothing to indicate that the family was particularly violent or abusive or... No. I mean, even her grandfather, W.B. Tommy, I mean, just nothing about good things. And Yeah. And that... I, I couldn't share all the things. I mean, he was called the jolly, mm-hmm. you know, the jolly commissioner. 
he that's how he was known every he seemed very well liked there were some problems with his her parents marriage but i don't think it was after she was raised yeah well and, i mean there could have been you know, tensions in the home but yeah and you know and then there was the one relative who was suicidal right but that isn't indicative of anything really and i'm just uh, this one puzzles me i'll be honest mm-hmm. and no indication of a serious head injury no you know just it, it makes me think that you know my theory that's like the munchausen by proxy that just that first bit of attention mm-hmm. she got what she craved mm-hmm. she was the third of four kids maybe she felt ignored as a child that's mm-hmm. the only and then so now she's finally getting this attention and who did she feel ignored by the most maybe mom I do think it's interesting that there doesn't seem to have been a lot of interaction with her immediate family mm-hmm. with the people like the cousins and the aunts and the uncles and all of that yeah. so I wonder if there was some sort of separation that happened it, it makes me think that especially when you think that her oldest brother went and joined the Navy and then who was never back stateside. Mm -hmm. And then when he did get back stateside, he was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, nowhere near Alabama. Right. Her sister Louise cut off contact with her Mm -hmm. early in. And I didn't get the impression there was a whole lot of contact with her mother. And maybe that had to do with having the baby and mom taking the baby in. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the brother Murray, he's the only one who visited her. Mm-hmm. That was younger brother. Right. And some of those relationships are, it, it is interesting. So it does make you wonder what happened in their home. Because the, mm-hmm. the James and Mary divorced mm-hmm. and they waited until the kids were grown. Mm-hmm. But maybe there was a lot of tension and fighting in the home. Somebody was, they weren't getting enough attention. I don't know. There's probably more. That just seems, because even amongst the people who were get, getting married so very young, mm-hmm. there doesn't seem to be anything that would indicate that there were a lot of violence or a lot of drinking or alcoholism or anything like that so i'm just it's demons Mm -hmm. i'll go with that now before we get off and before we end i'm going to do this again with you any recommendations like books or anything i have a book recommendation after when i was finishing this up on oh i know a book but do you have anything um, no. Any TV shows you're watching? Well, I'm addicted to Bridgerton currently. And so Still. I have been watching it and rewatching it and then watching it some more. And a friend was over yesterday. Uh, what is today? Tuesday. A friend was over the weekend and he had not yet seen Bridgerton. So we watched it through again. Um, yeah. So, and other than that, I'm just getting ready to start work. So my life is kind mm-hmm. of, you know, focused at the moment. How about you? Well, I thought I'd recommend a book I've read a few years ago. I'll tell you what I'm reading currently, and then I will tell you my recommendation, though. She has a series, and they're midlife books. Oh. So right now, I'm reading the fourth in a series, My Midlife Crisis, My Rules by Robin Peterman. And it's so good. And they're these books are really funny. Basically, it, it, it just to understand me, I like paranormal books. Uh-huh. I like historical fiction. I like some sci-fi and fantasy, but paranormal's tends to be kind of what I read them or mysteries tend to be what I read the most. And, and this one, she, she turns 40, the main character. And all of a sudden she starts seeing ghosts. Hmm. And like they're coming to her and she can touch them. She even gets out super glue and she's putting their parts back together for them. I mean, it's this whole thing. And she discovers that she's a death counselor. Oh gosh. She's supposed to help the death find their way to the next step. So 
but you know, she turns 40 and everything kind of goes down, you know, like, oh, what's going to happen next? So I'm on book four of the series and it's really entertaining. Fun. But um, the book I thought I'd recommend, because I was thinking about this as I was, you know, writing my notes down, is a book I read a few years ago called The Spy Mistress by Jennifer Chiaverini. I think that's how you spell, pronounce her last name, or Chiaverini. And it's about Elizabeth Van Lu. And Elizabeth Van Lu lived in Richmond, Virginia um, during the Civil War, and she was a Union spy. Ooh. And she talks about the conditions in the POW camps. Oh, wow. You know, look at the reviews on the book because they're kind of mixed. I gave it, I thought it was five stars for me. It's Mm -hmm. slow. I mean, it's not like something you go, ooh, (laughs) what happens next? But it does deal a lot with the history. And if you're really into history, you'll probably enjoy the book. Okay. I will take a look at it. If you're not as much into history, I think you're going to go, yeah. I will take a look at it. Yeah. So that's my recommendation. How fun. Yeah. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for all your work and on this. Team. Next time hmm. we're going to be talking about Bell Star. Yay. An even more intriguing Bell. Yes. And um, actually her name was Myra Maybell Shirley when she was, you know, that was her maiden name. Was she related to Anne Shirley from Anne of Green Anne Gables? Shirley. No. <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you were like, I actually, who, who the yeah, hell are my, you talking about? <laughs> I never read those books. Oh my goodness. They're good I never read. watched the shows. I never liked, I never got into them. Really? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I didn't as a kid, but I did as an adult. So I read the books. I've seen this I Maybe I'll have to check them out at some point. You know, yeah, they're my, adorable. My to read list though is already, you know, 600. <laughs> yeah, I can believe it because, you know, I think the part of your brain that like buys books and the part of the brain that reads the books should talk to each other because I notice I tend to stack books up and then I look mm-hmm. at this and go, okay, now I have to read that. And then I get drawn in a completely different direction. Yeah, I have a hard time reading the books I bought unless I'm buying the book to read it right away. Right, same. I'm like, I'm in trouble because I have a lot of books that I'm like, ooh, that looks good. Mm-hmm. A lot of them I've gotten from garage sales. Oh, nice. And stuff, but not all. Nice. <laughs> Chris knows that if, you know, if I was left to my own devices, the house would be nothing but books. <laughs> they are so, an excellent yeah. decorating device. But they are. Well, thanks for an awesome show. And I guess yeah. I will see you again soon when we talk about Bell Star. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.